Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. This is Dean Linke with a handoff to ECNL Boys Commissioner Jason Cutney. This is Jason Cutney, ECNL Boys Commissioner. As many of you know, I learned so much during my time as a player and an executive with the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. And more importantly, I met so many amazing people who continue to do great things for the game and for the ECNL. One such person is Mike Whiteman. Mike is the Director of Sports Science, heading up strength and conditioning for the Riverhounds. He is also the author at Simply Faster and often works with ECNL national events. Mike works every day to develop athleticism within a broad range of elite soccer players from youth to professional, both males and females. On this show, we take a deep dive with Mike on sports science, the many ways sports performance training has developed over the years, and the future of sports science and soccer moving forward. And this is Mike Whiteman. It is an honor to be on this week's ECNL podcast with Jason, and I hope I can share some wisdom on the importance of sports science and sports performance in this game that we love. So join Mike Whiteman and me, Jason Cutney, on this week's edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And it all starts after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country. With a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. I am Dean Linky. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And as I do every six weeks or so, proud to hand over the keys to Jason Cutney, the ECNL boys commissioner. Thanks, Dean. Very excited to be joined here by a, not only a, an individual that I've worked with for many years in the Pittsburgh Riverhounds, but also someone that I'm a close friend with for many years in life. So today's show, we're excited to hear to have Mike Whiteman. Mike, he's many things to many different people in terms of the sports performance world, but just quickly mentioning he's the director of sports science for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds Soccer Club. He's a contributing author to simplyfaster.com. He has also, for the last few years, been an ECNL Boys National Training Camp performance coach. And he is kind of long-term athletic development evangelist that I know in my life. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Jay, thank you for having me. So, Mike, just to give a little history here to our listeners, Mike and I would go back some time here. So, when I was coming out of college and, uh, and playing professionally, I was returning to Pittsburgh in my off-seasons, living with a, a friend of mine, common friend of Mike and, and mine, I, I should say. So, I was living in the house. Mike was living in the house. Mike at that time was working in a uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific, a lab in Pittsburgh. He was writing scripts and, and just kind of going through numbers. If you're listening and you just can think of the movie A Beautiful Mind and there's numbers <laughs> circulating around someone's head, that was Mike's life every single day. And he was not happy necessarily doing that, but he was very good at it at the same time. And at that point, I was also getting started with some discussions about how to possibly 
get involved with the Pittsburgh Riverhounds from an ownership perspective, purchase a club with some partners, start running things. And the conversation started many, many years ago with Mike that if we did do this, if we purchased the Riverhounds and if we started to build a youth academy, one of the key features of this was athletic development. And so I, I start the conversation there because, you know, over this last, geez, since that was 2006, 2007. So over these last almost 15 years, Mike has really grown the athletic performance side of the Pittsburgh Riverhounds to a level that I certainly never thought was possible many years ago. He's made a, a national name for himself in this field. He is one of the industry leaders. We're very, very honored to have him here. And I'm going to start with some questions here that I think will be very meaningful to our listeners. And we certainly work with a lot of directors of coaching, a lot of college coaches, pro coaches, and a lot of players as well within the league and parents. But you know, when you look, Mike, at athletic development in soccer players, take us back to 2006, 2007, when you were first getting into this, and then look at it all the way to 2022 and beyond. Just take us from 30,000 feet. What's the long-term look at it? What are the changes? Dive us into that world of your soccer athletic development. When we first began, and it's now crazy to say that it has been nearly 15 years ago at this point, I think... Everyone looked at it from a, a very traditional old school type perspective where we started to think of soccer in regard to if we wanted to increase fitness, more was always better. So harder was often perceived as better. And I think in the most simple way to describe the biggest changes, I think smarter is now better in the approach. So when you say that, I go back to my college days, and I think this is pretty normal for most in that demographic of like the 35 to 45-year-old soccer player right now in the country that is a coach or played at that level. When we were in college, we lifted our brains out, right? So every morning we would be in 6 a.m. in the spring session, lifting as heavy as we possibly could, PRs for squats and bench press, all these things. And then, you know, oh my gosh, somehow we're getting injured quite a bit. I don't understand how this is happening, right? And like the, you know, the stupid athlete that we were at that time, how has that evolved and how are you taking that into the younger demographic now? At that time, I think it was a badge of honor to really abuse yourself. And there was something to be said for perhaps developing toughness, mental toughness uh, as a result, but that's about it. In regard to performance, you get the nail on the head. You know all too well that in doing all of that sort of volume and that loading that it led to injuries. So the best ability for any athlete is availability. And that was one of the unique things that I started to really fully comprehend at the Riverhounds, working with grassroots aged athletes through Scholastic, through pro, it's how do we start someone at a very, very young age, two, three years old, and then just nurture that and then have them be healthy so that they can sustain playing the game that they love throughout the entirety of their life. And that's even beyond collegiate or even per perhaps professional play. That's, hey, can you still play in an old men's or women's league and enjoy your life? And that's really a marathon and it requires much more subtlety <laughs> in order to sustain that long-term than we initially thought. That's the biggest difference. Fortunate enough years ago to get involved with running the Riverhounds and people always ask, what were the best investments we made when building a club? And 
the first investment really, other than purchasing the club itself was investing in you, right. And, and buying a business that you were running at that time and, and folding you into the Riverhounds and what we were doing. I don't think, you know, we, when you're building a soccer club, we didn't necessarily understand at the time, especially as a pro soccer club at that time, the Riverhounds were probably not considered necessarily a, a top level pro franchise within Pittsburgh, right? We were playing in a local high school stadium. It was a, the world was a lot different. We didn't really have a youth academy. But the interesting thing about your time with Pittsburgh has been that when, when we purchased you and when we <laughs> got you into the fold, we started to look initially at how to get you involved with the youth, with the youngest players, with the academy, because that was a big focus, it was not necessarily that you would come in and develop the pro players physically and get them ready for games. That was very secondary. And that was very common for how we looked at a lot of things at that time with the Riverhounds. And I think generally speaking, clubs now know today that they have to put their best resources into their youngest players, whether it's the, the sophistication of the coaches or the resource allocation, things like that. But through your time, you've then worked with you know, the four, five, six-year-olds, you've worked with the 15, 16, 17-year-olds, you've worked with the kids coming back in their college days and now the pro teams as well. Explain that because that's very rare, right? And normally someone that specializes in your field, I have to imagine focuses on one of those as a subset. You're spending time across all of them every week. What is that like? It, exactly. And that's, that's the one thing that I came to understand, the, the uniqueness of that. To your point, Usually, you typically work with one or the other, not everything in, in between. So over the 15 years, again, which is now crazy to say, you started to develop just experience. And there's really, there's nothing you can go to school for. No, my biology degree or is, is worthless. And, and all of the accreditations that you can get, nothing compares to the experience now of how to, again, gently massage that from the extremely young and then truly nurture that to the point where someone is healthy and as the byproduct of being extraordinarily healthy performing at their highest level and they're playing at the highest level when they're much older when it gets more from development into actually demonstration and performing and results. So how has that changed for you in your own in your own training then over the years? Because years ago, and, and I know this is a podcast, not everyone sees Mike. Mike is uh, he's basically a machine. So if you look in front of my screen right now, you would see a machine on the other side of it. That is the, my best way of describing Mike. But years ago, Mike was bigger, right? I think right. from a muscle right. mass standpoint, you were right. bigger. You were lifting in a different way than you are right. now. How have you changed and why? So that that's that's one of the things. Now seeing the the data that has been uh, in large part of proliferation of just simple hardware that has become much more available to the, the public. Starting to understand really what is effective for a, a soccer athlete. Years ago when we first began, it was all about, all right, addressing a glaring need in, in, in the soccer world. A lot of soccer, again, was geared towards fitness more. So inherently soccer players were, typically fit compared to their peers, maybe like a football athlete, a basketball can run forever and quick, good feet, things of that nature, but they lacked speed and power in a traditional sense. So the way to address that is by developing speed, power, strength. So force production, that's the big buzzword, right? Produce force, produce force. And that was really effective. And we saw that with our initial forays into our youth teams, by, by addressing that, we created some incredible young athletes 
So we filled a void. But then I started to realize that after, after being privy to seeing data by using over the last couple of years, this simple hardware and seeing speed times, sprint times, that it's more about how an athlete can absorb force, particularly as it relates to soccer because of the, the agility concerns. How can you smoothly transition and get that center of gravity to go from one spot to another effectively? So that required a lot less mass. In strength conditioning, we think of strength in two different ways, absolute strength, gym strength, which you still need a little bit of, but really what's become clear is, and the data supports this, relative strength. How well can you move your own body weight? And that has allowed me to lean out and it's given me a different vision of what my soccer athletes should move and, and perform like. So I think for years, lighter and stronger seemed like yes. their opposites, right? Is that, is that the right, right, that? right. So that was the, the mantra in football, right? Bigger, faster, stronger. Yeah. However, what, what started to kind of show itself was exactly, we wanted to kind of put the biggest engine in the smallest chassis as possible. So uh, an idea termed mass specific force. So yes, we want you to be powerful, but not at the expense of gaining bulk because in a 90 minute game, you're going to have to carry that weight around on the field. And regardless of whether it's good mass or bad mass, it's still mass. So, and I've always, I liken myself more to a, a teacher than an actual coach. So I like to educate. And the one thing I always remind the kids, even the young ones tastefully is that you can't outrun physics and physiology. So at the end of the day, those are simple truths that are always undefeated. Well, as I get older, I'm trying my, my, my best to outrun them, though. Like, <laughs> right. right. Like, so is LeBron, apparently. LeBron versus running for my dear life at this point <laughs> to try to stay away from the effects of age, which is uh, right. it's creeping up on me. Let's talk about a little bit more specific when you say force absorption, things like that. Right. You know, right. to a soccer coach, to a soccer parent, soccer player, they may not know exactly what you mean. Tell, talk a little bit more about that. Right. So, so quite simply, the best way to go about developing that, what bridges the gap, I feel, and I feel extraordin- really strongly about this, from traditional strength work to the field, plyometrics. Simple, simple two-footed leaping, one-legged hopping, multi-directional, and then really owning that. And this is where I started to understand that a lot of performance as it relates to multi-directional sports truly begins here and and not just performance but injury prevention as well because acls particularly in females young females it's it's a really important thing that we try to combat as, as much as possible so the best analogy I can draw from my soccer coaches out there, the more you touch a ball with quality touches, the better you're going to get on the ball. So it's no different when we start talking about your relationship with the ground and moving. The more quality ground contacts you can build, the more efficient you become at moving and the, and the least likely you become at, at becoming uh, an injury in, in the future as well too. 
So familiarity with the ground is, is really important. And that allows you then as an athlete to concentrate on the game and not worry about your moving. Cause everyone's been in that spot, maybe coming back from an injury or just fatigue. You know, when you're chasing the game, that's an awful, awful, awful feeling. When you're worried about how you feel, there's no way you're concentrating on what's important, which is the actual game itself. So if you can always be on the front side of that, that's, that's extraordinarily beneficial. We're going to take a quick break here. We are on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We are with the Director of Sports Science on the Pittsburgh River Browns, Mike Whiteman. We'll be back right after this break. The ECNL is pleased to announce Quick Goal as the official goal provider and partner for ECNL Girls and ECNL Boys, a new partnership created to support the growth and development of the country's top players, clubs, and coaches. At all national events, including national playoffs and national finals, the Quick Goal Coaches Corner will provide hospitality and social space for ECNL girls, ECNL boys, and collegiate coaches. Quick Goal will also be the presenting sponsor of the national championship winning ECNL Girls and ECNL Boys Coaches of the Year and the ECNL Girls and ECNL Boys Goals of the Year. Quick Goal looks forward to helping the ECNL continue to elevate the standards of youth soccer and provide more opportunities to players on and off the field in the coming years. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. We are back with Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. I'm Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, joined today by Mike Whiteman. Mike is the strength and speed sports performance guru for the ECNL Boys National Training Camps and also the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. Before the break, we were talking a little bit more about what is athleticism in soccer? What does it actually mean? Uh, we're going to continue that discussion now, look at some examples as well. And Mike, it always makes me laugh. Every time I think about the earliest days of sports performance training, I do remember the, you know, the, the quintessential soccer coach that would go out there with a parachute and he would just strap it to the back of a player and, and ask them to run as fast as they possibly could. And then, you know, then we had the speed ladders and we had kettlebells and we had all these, there's a lot of, a lot of different things that started to pop up from there. So knowing that whole range of, you know, the equipment that has been available to athletes over the years, Talk about it, right? What what has been meaningful and what you've seen over those years that actually helps? You know, what are the things that people generally used incorrectly for many years? And what do you see as being the next step in that evolution? Yeah, so you, you nailed about every cliched tra training device. I, lo I love the parachute, was, Mike. I wanted to strap that parachute to me wherever that I That was brilliant. You maybe just left out the jump shoes. Yeah. Those, those ridiculous, yes, those ridiculous contraptions. Oh, right, right. And I, oh. I, I only mentioned that because I, I had a pair. So, <laughs> right. I, I would say for, yeah, for in the soccer community, if you had to just boil it down to one specific tool that you just mentioned, it likely is the agility ladder, right? And, and perhaps the biggest cliche uh, of all. And 
great value, I think, for grassroots level aged athletes, just because it teaches motor skills and coordination. But as it relates to true athleticism, it's about and displacing your center of gravity. Are you creating space? Now, that's the one thing that the ladder truly doesn't allow you to demonstrate. It's just choreographed footwork and tap dancing. So it's impressive, but you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so, so that was that was the one thing. That's the, those are nice, and that, and they'll get Instagram likes and retweets on on Twitter. But are you accomplishing anything? And that's the one thing that simple simple pieces of hardware, such as the, the thing that I've fallen in love with recently, uh, the the free lap timing system, a uh, simple Bluetooth timing system that gives you feedback, not just with traditional acceleration data, hey, how fast can you get from point A to point B? But if you have multiple cones, which are relatively inexpensive, you can start talking about capturing average velocity as well too. And that's, that is a different world for soccer athletes, but at the same time, it's a game changer as well, too. Step out of that for a second now. So we're talking about athletes in, in the soccer world, right? When we think about football, for instance, I'm always, the NFL combine to be, right. has always been kind of, I don't know, I'm not, I, I love football. I don't really understand the combine in the right. sense that like, it's, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's cool. And there, it's kind of like the buzzword of, of uh, sports performance that you could see a guy lift 225 times on an incline bench as many times as possible and things like that. I don't know how that necessarily shows me anything about them being a football player. And I always think about the same thing with soccer, of you know, what actually means something to a soccer player, right? Because yes, certain soccer players look different than others. Certain soccer players are tall. Others are short. Every time we see a small soccer player, we're like, yeah, well, Messi did it. And you know, like it, it, right. You generally just kind of say, well, right, yeah, you, small soccer players. You grab onto the statistical outlier. <laughs> yeah. So like we, we look at these things and we try to snap judgments and we always kind of scoff at the, you know, the eye tests, the EYE eye test, where you're looking at an athlete and you're saying, this is an athletic player versus that. Right. When you think of an athletic soccer player, what do you think of? Yeah. Ruthlessly efficient. And I want to use that adjective. So they are lean and they are able to compete for the entirety of whatever the demand requires of them. If it's 90 plus, so be it. Now we just witnessed that the last two weeks with, with our, with our first team, with the, with the Riverhounds really having to stretch their, their minutes there to 120 plus, and then eventually culminating in, in two shootouts. And so whatever the demands of the game ask for, for you, can you meet them? And that requires, I think, a two-pronged approach. And in soccer, the, the, the one approach I think is often overlooked. And that is when we start thinking of efficiency, we think of more and volume, things of that nature. Can we run further, run longer, but we never address the top end of the equation, which is the velocity. And by increasing someone's speed, they are becoming more efficient at sub-maximal speeds too. So you need both. You need to develop the floor and you need to raise the ceiling. And 
so in soccer, it's mostly just continually crushing <laughs> and sweeping the floor and never really doing anything to step back and think, hmm, how can I really develop a more sophisticated approach to really push that ceiling a little higher? When I go back in my memory banks with you, one thing that really stood out to me was the story of Robbie Vincent. For those that don't know Robbie, he was an MLS player with DC United. Uh, he grew up in the Liverpool Academy. He actually started in uh, the Pittsburgh Riverhounds years back and came over to the U.S. and, and went to College of uh, Charleston, right? So University of Charleston, I should say, in West Virginia. And He's one of those guys that when he came into Riverhounds camp, he was kind of an unknown, right? Just kind of came out of a small university in West Virginia at that time, wasn't really known as a, a top prospect, but you could see something in his game and every coach and every director can understand that. There's certain players that you just see something in them. They have that ability, they have that hit factor. One thing that was missing after Robbie's first year in the USL was that he just athletically was missing a little something, right? It was hard to say. There was guys that just had a little bit of an edge on him in the central midfield. Robbie could ping a ball on a dime for, you know, 60 yards away, no problem. He could shoot and put his foot through a ball like no one else could, but he was just getting a little bit bypassed in the central midfield. And it was making enough of a difference that he was capping his own performance. And I remember sitting down with him at that time uh, in my role, I, I was able to discuss something with Robbie. And it just, you know, to me, I said, Robbie, I think you could be the best player in this league. I just, I truly think that you just have so much about your game. And you can see there was definitely a fire in him. He made the decision on his own to go and talk to you, Mike, right? I mean, he came to you and basically said, I want to become your stepchild <laughs> through this offseason. Right. I just remember at that point seeing Robbie every single day with you and his body, yes, changed over the course of that offseason, but not in the sense that like you see a guy dropping 60 pounds and right. all of a sudden he's chiseled and it wasn't that. It was just he looked different and he moved differently. And I was at that time still training with those guys and he just was a different level when he came out onto the field the next year. And Sure enough, you know, lights it up in the USL that year. One of the best players, if not the best player in the USL that season, gets signed to DC United that next year uh, and goes and has a great MLS career. Tell us about that, right? Because that was, you're then taking a guy who's already at the professional level. Right. So it's not this formidable young kid that can come in and you can change the way he thinks. And he was a pro, right? And it's not always right. easy to deal with a pro, as we all know. And But you dealt with that in a way that was so outlandishly positive that, that next year, everyone on the Riverhounds team wanted you to adopt them. But right. talk to us about, about Robbie and his path through that offseason, because that's a, that's a short period of time. Right. Robbie, truly exemplary model of, of, of being a professional. And, and to your point, a, a, a pro's pro, because by the time you are a professional, there is a, a certain amount of an innate ego that goes with that. And he truly humbled himself and was the most coachable professional I probably have, <laughs> I have ever had. Uh, but to that end, though, because of, again, how soccer had been truly developed, I, I, I capitalized on, on glaring holes that were just never addressed in his life. So he was very green in regard to speed and power and strength in a very traditional sense 
So just simply interjecting a little bit of that, like, again, we did with those initial academy teams was, was just as successful. In the park leagues in England, before he'd come over and in Liverpool, they were running miles around the field and, and doing the speed ladders. So I just filled the void that was, was really necessary. And he did the rest. <laughs> the talent then spoke for, for itself. Pivot a little bit to, a, to the female side, right? He's, you know, strong on the boys' side, strong on the girls' side. Grew as a girls' league, has the top female athletes in the country in, in this league. You train all these players. You're even, you're training my daughter, right? As, as, right, as, right. as the youngest front-end players here in that academy. But when you look at the, the players coming through, I think, you know, Tessa Della Rose is a name that stands up. Tessa was a, a phenomenal ECNL player. Right, all ACC as a freshman this year at UNC scored in her PK last night to uh, to help the team move on past Duke. I don't think in my time as a youth soccer coach or trainer, I ever saw a player like Tessa. Right, and that that says a lot because we've had a lot of a lot of great players we've been fortunate enough to work with, Mike. But to me, I met Tessa because I saw her driving with her dad an hour and a half plus every day of the week to train with you when she was in whatever that was eighth grade at the time seventh, right. eighth grade. and so that's how I met her and then we started training her and then she joined teams and you could just see the impact on the field but the amazing thing about Tessa because there's a lot of people listening that have that type of player in their organization she just broke the all-time record at UNC as a freshman this year for the beat test right, right. and Everyone knows UNC women's soccer. That is certainly something that's a feat right there. To, to go in as a freshman and set their all-time beat test record is, to me, yes, Tessa is extremely fit. But talk about the mental side, because to me, the difference there is the mental piece, right? I've, I've done beat tests in my career as well. There's a time where your brain takes over. And right. you're training an athlete and you're really pushing the rigors of this efficiency and force absorption and all these other things that you're talking about. Right. Talk about the mental side of what it takes for an athlete to get to that level of focus. Right. And the one thing that she demonstrated from, from, from day one is that maniacal drive. It truly, people sometimes, I think, use it too loosely, but she had that Mamba mentality for a, a young athlete. Incredible. And, and, and she's not relented since and and her efforts on the field at unc currently clearly so yes we can talk about the 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 science as much as we want force production force absorption we can rest her and we can periodize this and and have uh, a nutritionist ready for that but at the end of the day a, a test such as the the beep test is going to come down at the very end to just who wants it more. And those are things that I still over 15 years try to creatively explore and how to tastefully develop that without burning an athlete out because you can't make it, you can't become so smart. I mentioned smarter is greater than harder. That's just a, a macro sort of takeaway. Smarter at this point will definitely beat harder, but you still need to develop metal. And there's a point where you need to tastefully challenge that. So being able to, again, do that without exhausting the athlete, particularly uh, uh, from my end. So to Tessa has 
always had that that one track mind and uh, she's she's been undeterred and you love when all the years of development really demonstrate itself in such a way and the the beep test is cool but what we're seeing now in the ACC championship right, with the, with well, just recently with the birth now they're going to be playing I guess Florida State this Sunday so that'll be after <laughs> the pocket who knows what will happen there but uh with uh, with the freshman year that she's had that's now really again the demonstration of that long-term athletic development it was developed and now it's being demonstrated at the appropriate time in the appropriate venue not on the training field <laughs> you mentioned questioning it brings me it brings a good question into this for me so i feel like the sports performance world a lot of changes over the years, right. a lot of you know fallacies. People have proven things right or wrong. Nowadays on Twitter, everything is proven right, right or wrong every single right. day. Right. And you know, there's a lot of right right and wrong with that. So, but I'm looking at this from the standpoint of the kind of the you know misconceptions of sports performance training. Do you feel like over the last you know 10, 15 plus years that there's you know, one or two examples of commonly held beliefs that you've questioned or, or feel have been proven wrong that you still see other trainers doing today? Just to, to stay on topic with, and things I've said earlier, more is not always better. Quality is going to trump quantity all the time. Not, that is the case. Now, the, the art is knowing at what point you lose quality. So from my end, we now have, again, simple hardware, free lap timing de devices. And I also have a velocity-based tracking for the times that we do use traditional barbell strength exercises to know when an athlete is no longer getting the desired result that I want. So I can tastefully leave. Whereas before in years past, it was just guessing. And it was like, oh, it's, it says we should do this. Well, we'll keep going. And at that point, we're just spinning our wheels. Uh, I, I would almost and I've hypothesized that it would be the same from a technical standpoint for soccer as well, too. So obviously, you want touches on the ball and you want to constantly be on the ball. But at a certain point, if you're fatigued, are you training the body in the way that you want it to be? Because it's such a, a, a delicate skill, I question is, like once you get to the point where you peak at whatever your endeavor is for that day, whether it's ball striking or receiving, passing, whatever, that you probably should maybe step away once you start getting into, we'll say, negative habits at that point. That's for technical coaches such as yourself, but but that would be that would be my theory and my analogy that I would draw there. So to me, I, I would say that would be the one paradigm that I, I've challenged. I. In, in large part, relating it back to Tessa, it's what I didn't do that was maybe most effective as opposed to what I did. Well, on that note, we won't go any more in this segment. We will take a quick break here. We are, again, breaking line the ECL podcast. Mike Whiteman, the director of sports science for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and the national training camp coordinator for the ECNL boys. We will be back after a moment from our partners. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world 
the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Okay, we are back for the final segment here of Breaking the Law in the UCNL podcast. I'm Jason Cutney. I'm joined by Mike Whiteman. Before the break, we were talking more about this performance training for soccer athletes, right? What does it mean? What are some of the misconceptions? Talked a little bit about some of the success stories that Mike's had in terms of training young athletes. I mean, he's, he's trained many top-tier athletes as well across sports, right? Antonio Brown, Terrell Pryor, NFL players like that. Mike was involved in different camps run by Peyton Manning. He's truly tested himself over the years at the highest level of athleticism in this country. And he does a lot every single day and every week with the Riverhounds with the youngest. I think, you know, we're going to pivot a little bit here, Mike, in this last segment and talk about building a strength and speed platform with a youth soccer club. Because as we talked about earlier on, we made a, a significant investment years ago in, in that direction. And we understood that when we built an academy in Pittsburgh, you know, Pittsburgh is not a huge market. It's not going to have the, the demographic that other markets around the country are going to have. It doesn't have just thousands and thousands of kids rolling in and out every day that you can choose the top 15 and, and right. compete nationally. It has to work really hard in Pittsburgh. You know, that team in Pittsburgh has to work very hard to get to the regional and national level, right? Just based on where it's at. That is the case of Pittsburgh, right? It's a blue collar town. Go into any other city around the country, go to youth soccer clubs, directors that are building soccer programs that want to have this strength and speed component. Because everyone knows now it's, it's one of those things that has become important because it's become highlighted as a, as a weakness for others that don't offer it. And then it's a strategic advantage if your club offers it, you promote that around tryout time and you try to bring numbers into your club. But it has to mean something. It has to actually have a connectivity to what's going on with the club itself and the development of those players and those individual development plans for those players. I think the one thing that has always stood out to me when we started the Riverhounds Academy, we built it out of an indoor sports complex, <laughs> right? And it was, it was small, but it, was, it worked really well for right. what we needed. We had the turf field, we had bi-leveled racquetball courts that we turned into fitness studios. We had whatever equipment we could potentially find pennies under the couch cushions to purchase. But we built it in the sense that every week in training, those players were exposed to strength and speed programming, and it was consistent across the board. It was consistent on the boys and the girls. The young ones had a different program from the middle-aged ones, a different program from the college prep age, and up to the pros. But it was always drip-fed into everything that was done. Now you look at clubs that maybe don't have the resources, they don't have the indoor facilities, they don't have those rooms, they don't have the budget potentially to hire a full-time individual to come in and do it. 
many clubs outsource. They have their teams go to a different fitness location once a week and do things, but it doesn't always, you know, the left hand doesn't always speak to the right hand in those cases. Right. Right. So if you were looking at this and you were going to advise a, a youth soccer club on how to build this type of program within their framework, where would you start? I would start with a dedicated individual who truly loves the athletic side of it more than soccer. So the one thing I've seen with some of the other clubs that have endeavored into this territory, you often have an ex-soccer guy such as myself, but he's also trying to coach a couple teams and be the speed and strength guy at the same time too. And I've found often when you try to chase two rabbits, you catch none. So one guy that is fully dedicated to just his whole existence being increasing the athleticism and the, the speed, the power, the, the, the fitness and and decreasing the likelihood that their, their athletes incur in injuries. And one of the, I think the things that we did so well at the Riverhounds, Jay, was despite me playing soccer my whole life, many people didn't even know. <laughs> and they still don't know. Now, this might be a surprise to everyone <laughs> out there. <laughs> that's how well we did. Like, that's how well we actually separated the two universes. And, and, and that's really, I think, where it needs to begin in another club. Now, that doesn't necessarily even mean hiring someone full time. That's just taking someone who's preferably very young and very hungry and very passionate and just giving them the opportunity as you did for me, as you really just did for me and just said, hey, no promises. But I think we could do really awesome things. And then sort of just letting them, them, them run with it and, and focus on that one singular task. The initial investment of bringing someone on is right. one thing to consider. Think about right. equipment, right? And if you're bare bones and you're just trying to build this out, what, if any, what equipment would you focus right. on that would be an initial purchase? Honestly, it's a simple medicine balls and jump jump stretch bands the jump stretch bands have so much versatility in regard to just light level resistance but they can also double as light sleds for speed work and even more we'll say specific strengthening as well well too um like like heavier sled marches like really making them work um it, it, you can really get a lot out of that one singular piece of equipment. But honestly, the, the, the great thing about being or developing speed and strength program with youth athletes, you truly just need a little bit of space and the athlete, that, that is it. And as I mentioned before, I'm so passionate as it relates to plyometrics kind of being that bridge between just simple rudimentary body weight strengthening in the field you can do that anywhere, the, 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 the leaping, the hopping. And, and if anyone has seen my, my Twitter account, <laughs> you know that we have truly done this. I practice what I preach. We have, I've had my athletes do this just about everywhere <laughs> within uh, the various facilities that, that, that we have. So uh, particularly as it relates to youth athletes, they need to, they need to master their body weight first. Simple squatting, lunging, crawling for just the, 
the, the motor skills that that also builds as well too. Push-ups, pull-ups. Pull-ups are, are a lost art, but it's such a great indicator of that specific attribute I mentioned before, relative strength, relative strength, relative strength. How well you can move your body weight is so, so important. And all of these things can be had for almost nothing. You just need the athlete there and then you can build. Um, as, as you would grow in success in that program, then you would perhaps build more funding that you could get other things such as maybe dumbbells or an actual sled or then a free lap timing device. And we've had a just jump vertical jump pad too. So I can get electronic readouts on, on our athletes power as well too. Those things can come, but it's like a piecemeal program. You can truly start with nothing and just one dedicated individual and then slowly accumulate. I think a lot of in particular in the gym world, you start, you think too big and you stock and then you, your overhead exceeds what your, your expectations were and then you fail. If you start small and you grow big, that's, that's the, the better way to do it. Well, you mentioned your Twitter account. Uh, I remember the first days of the Hounds Speed Twitter account. So the handle Hounds Speed, that's H-O-U-N-D-S-S-P-E-E-D. If you're listening, check it out if you haven't checked it out before. I mean, Mike, you will see his army of players doing all types of different movements. You'll see Mike doing the movements. It will humble you if you try some of the movements <laughs> yourselves. I'll just leave it at that. But what I would say is that that piece of your world that the, the Twitter account has become a big thing, right? There's coaches that come up to me, college coaches often now come up to me at national events for the ECNL. And they know that I was previously with the river hounds and they will ask what's the deal with your strength guy. Right. And it's funny you say that most people don't know that you were a soccer player, right? You were a college soccer player. You battled injuries yourself as a, as a young player. And that actually turned your thinking more toward this piece of it. Right. And, and you happen to be extremely intelligent. And when you combine all those things together, then you have, you know, the, the makings of a great sports performance coach, apparently, but that Twitter piece is interesting because I don't know if everyone understands your world, right? All the things that you bring to the Riverhounds Academy. This is very far from Mike shows up at a couple of training sessions a month and, and does jumping jacks with players, right? This is way more refined. This is built into the curriculum and every player has a plan in terms of their athletic development within a phase of the academy. And so Maybe just take a couple of minutes to explain to people what that actually looks like. What is the, the world of offerings that you bring to the academy so that people can look at what they're doing internally with their potentially their, their current strength and speed platform or something that they want to build and develop? Right. I think to bring it full circle, if we tie everything back in together, that, that initial segment where we really spoke on the long-term athletic development, it begins at the youngest age groups are grassroots age kids and really just exposing them to good fitness and then actually having them in, in, enjoy it first and foremost and, and establishing that, that, that lifelong process, just simple body weight and, and motor skill development. And then as they, as they age a little bit and we get more into our intermediate years for the coaches out there, I'd say birth years from about our, our, our 20, 2012s through about our 20, 
tens, we start to actually incorporate more traditional understandings of of strength development, that body weight strength, the push-ups, the pull-ups, the, the the squatting, the lunging. But now it's under a more organized sort of sort of system. And then as we start to progress more into our performance age, our ECNL competitive age ages, then we start to actually collect data. So we're looking at acceleration data, velocity, uh, power. Um, and then when we get the opportunity as well to uh, beep test as well, the VO2 max, th things of that nature, and that which gets measured gets, gets improved. So it, it's, it's nurturing that, that process. And the one thing I think as, as advice, most coaches and, and we know parents do, you can fall prisoner to the moment. And that one singular game or that one moment or, or one training session even. Uh, it, one training session, a good training does not exist in a vacuum. It's, it's being able to develop long-term and one moment can do more harm than good. That's, that's a, one thing I can definitely assure everyone out there and it's being mindful of that. So in large part, it is just being a steward to this process and, and nurturing it. And that's the biggest difference I think from, it was, it was always intense and really aggressive. And now it's, it's kind of massaged its way to a, a nuanced sort of nudging as opposed to overt shoves in, 20, in, in 2006 and 2007 where it began and in and, and large part letting them just be kids and, and mature at their own spot, but uh, tastefully giving them insight when it needs to be given. Well, Mike, it's interesting now because we're, you know, 15 years later and you're now training my daughters uh, right. in the Browns Academy. My oldest daughter, for the listeners, my oldest daughter is eight. When I was asking her, I always ask her after the training sessions are done with Mike, you know, what stands out. And she said that Mike explains why we do everything that we do. And when I think about that, I also think about the national training camp for the UCNL. You've been involved in that a couple of times now, one in, in the Bahamas a few years back and then one in Louisville this past summer. And the players, it, it blew me away with the players because I didn't know, you know, you coming in for a few days in a very small, isolated camp, if they're going to truly get what I've seen develop over 15 years with in a club environment, right? Because those players from Riverhounds are around you every single week for many, many years. It stood out immediately that the players had not been exposed to a lot of the simple, what I think of being simple now because sure. I've been around you for a long time, but just the lack of exposure to that simple understanding of the why, you know, why you do this movement, why you do that movement. People can teach movements, but not everyone can explain why you're doing them and relate right. it to soccer. And, you know, that using that relative strength relative to the game of soccer, why it's important, what you're doing. And so for all the listeners, I, you know, I, I certainly hope you've taken something from this with the discussion from Mike, I've been able to watch Mike develop not only a business, but just develop an understanding of the soccer athlete at a level that I never thought was possible. Right? And I, I give Mike full credit for that. He stepped into a world that <laughs> at that time, we had very little understanding of what we were right. doing. 
it felt at many times like we were throwing stuff against the wall, but he eventually just built an empire in Pittsburgh in strength and speed. And now he has a humongous following around the country and the world thanks to social media for what he does. But Mike, I, I truly think, you know, that this element of the game is very important. It's underserved still in this country. It's an area where there's still a lot of the quote unquote football guys training soccer players. And we have to do a lot to help overcome that. And so I encourage everyone to, to look at Mike's social media, especially the, the Twitter account, see what he does, interface with Mike if you ever have questions in this world. But you know, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on. Obviously, you're like, you know, a lifelong friend here and, and we've worked together for many years, but I've been in awe of what you've developed in Pittsburgh. I know that you're, you're going to continue working forward with the ECNL as well, and we're certainly happy about that. But thank you very much for joining us on today's show. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the, the opportunity you gave me 15 years ago. And oh, all you've done is assist me in that process and allowed me to truly be myself and run with it and learn to fail in those <laughs> initial couple of years there. So that is a part of, of, of the process and forever indebted for that. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, this has been another great episode of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks very much for joining us and have a great week. Thank you, Jason Cutney. Thank you, Mike Whiteman. I want to thank Andrea Wheeler and also our producer, Colin Thras. For each and every one of them and all of you, I'm Dean Linke saying we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.